Thank you, Eric. Uh, please come on in and take just sit anywhere. That's fine. Uh, let me tell you my approach to this. Uh, Patrick and I have been talking about this all week long, and it's pretty clear if you've read Deuteronomy 7 and 8, these are not happy, perky chapters. Uh, there are a lot of warnings in there. There are also a lot of blessings in there. Uh, but the stories themselves, these, uh, Deuteronomy 7 and 8, are pretty redundant with many of the stories that we find in Exodus, Leviticus, and in Numbers. But God keeps trying to tell us there are some things I want you to learn. It's interesting to me that Eric chose community uh, for this particular study because if God says anything to us in this one or two, verse, two chapters, it is... Before you can have community with each other, I want you to recognize the community that you have with me. And now he struggles with that to get them to understand that all the way through chapter 7 and chapter 8. So here's the way I approach this. Uh, I'm not an Old Testament scholar by a long shot, but I always try to put myself in the story and say, if I had been sitting there and hearing this, what would I walk away with? So we're going to look at about three different dimensions if I get through all of it today. We're going to look at, number one, what would I have heard? Number two, we're going to go through the text, Deuteronomy 7 and 8. That won't come until right at the end because I'm going to go through it pretty fast. What did God say to them? And number three, what are the takeaways then that we have for having heard Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 8. So, if we start with this, I've got to decide if I'm in that story, who am I, first of all? Okay, I'm a child of Israel. I'm one of the children, and I've been going through this wilderness now for almost 40 years. Now, since everybody above the age of 20 is dead now, I've got to be somewhere between 40 and 60 years old. I've gone through all of this. Moses starts delivering his first sermon in Deuteronomy 1, 6. It begins. And if you track this out, there are about 70 days before they enter, cross the Jordan, and go into Jericho and take possession of the Promised Land. Now, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies. What happens when Moses dies? You what? A new leader comes into play, but they do something because Moses dies. What did they do? They mourn for 30 days. All right, if we're 60 days away and they mourned for 30 days, I'm not a great mathematician, but 70 minus 30 is 40 days. Moses has been talking to them about 40 days delivering several sermons and saying, this is important for you to hear. Before you go into the promised land, you need to get this right. You need to understand what God's talking to you about because if you don't, there are serious consequences for you. We're looking at a date and time that's probably around 1400 B.C. to 1450 B.C., somewhere right along in that time period. This is the 40th year, the first day of the 11th month. Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. 
You can't read Deuteronomy without being impressed that God and Moses have this conversation going on all the time. I mean, they just sit down and talk to each other. And they talk very, very frankly with each other. And they're like, God's like, why, why are you coming in here complaining to me about this? You know what you're supposed to do. And Moses is like, I just get so tired of them fussing all the time. So God and Moses have this relationship that they're talking with each other. And Moses now says, here's what I, God asked me to tell you. Uh, let's see. I wanted to get in my head a picture of what the land of Canaan really was like that they were about to inherit. So here it is. You go up, down, up to Sidon, down to Kadesh, and this area that's outlined is the land that they are about to inherit. And it is a good land. So they're sitting up here right across from... Uh, let's see, right at, where's Jericho? Where'd it go? Yeah, right down here. And they're getting ready to cross about right here. And they're sitting there, and they have been encamped there. So, I started looking at what would I have experienced so far to this point in time. This is a possible Exodus route. There are lots of maps that show an Exodus route that they followed for 40 years. But this is one of them. I wanted to look at this. They started up here at Ramesses, and he says, get out of here. Just go. I am sick of you all. I have had it with all of you. So they leave Ramesses. They go to Succoth, and the Lord then begins to lead them at Succoth, coming right down here to number two. The Lord starts to lead them by a cloud during the day and by fire at night. So they say, we're following God. Do you know how you pronounce this? I've looked up about three different times. I think it is Peharach. Uh, Israel passes through the Red Sea. So God's already aided them in getting out of where they were enslaved and now moving them into another area. At Marah, they start complaining. We're thirsting to death down here. We've been going through this wilderness. We really want some water to drink. They come to Mara and God, and they tell God, this water's bitter. We don't like this water. So what did Moses do? Well, that's coming. This is where he threw his rod in and it became sweet. This, this is where he takes a piece of wood and throws of what he goes to God and goes, what am I supposed to do? These people are just complaining all the time. And God said, see that piece of wood? Throw that piece of wood into water. I, personally, I'd like to know what kind of wood that was. He doesn't tell me what kind of wood that was. He throws a piece of wood into water, and they go, ooh, this is good. This is now good. And God says, you see, I'm taking care of you. I'm leading you. I've already divided the waters. I've given you now sweet water to drink. I'm with you. Do you understand that? I am with you. Five, Elam, they camped by the springs. I have no idea why this was in here. I find, I find the things that I don't know more intriguing than the things that I do know. They were searching for water. They find a place down here that has 12 springs with it. And scripture says, and 70 palm trees. Well, 
Why do I need to know how many palm trees were there? I have no earthly idea. I don't know. Did they need wood? Did they need it's like in Getty. cut them down? Do what? If it's like in Getty, there's nothing growing. So, so it would have been unusual to have 70 palm trees. Maybe they're impressed. 70 palm trees. I think wow. Israel has 70. They start with 70 people. I think Joseph goes over with his family with 70 people. Yeah, so it could have been symbolic. Yeah, I think it's an allusion to the to the twelve tribes and the seven. So there's enough springs and shade for everyone. For everyone there, everyone has been welcomed and included and taken care of in there. Good, good. Uh, then next they come to the wilderness of sin. The Lord sent manna and quail for food. The interesting thing about him sending manna and quail is they had never had manna before. It says they didn't know what it was. Their fathers didn't know what it was, and God said again. Can you see that I'm providing I'm giving you water in a sweet. I'm giving you a path to follow. I'm never leaving you at all. <clears throat> you want to, you're hungry? I'll give you manna every day. You know how many people we're talking about right now? I learned something on this. Hilton had said in class the other day, and I had forgotten it, Hilton, but you were right. There were 600,000 men, not counting... <laughs> not counting women and children uh, who went along with them. But there was a phrase in here that surprised me. I did not know this. Uh, let's see. Exodus 13, verse, no, Exodus, yeah, Exodus 12, verse 37 talks about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. But verse 38 says, and many other people went with them. Well, who was that? Egyptians. Or what? Could be Egyptians. Egyptians. Could very well be Egyptians because it talks about at one time there were officers in the Pharaoh's court who were fearful of God when he brought down the hail and they brought their herds and all inside because they knew what God was about to do. Whether they're the ones that went with them or not, I don't know. But it wasn't just the Egyptians. It was individuals who said, we think the God you're following is right. We're going with you. I don't know if they knew they were going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, but they began to believe that the God they had heard about was correct. Riffinum, water from a rock. This is where Moses also holds up his hands. He has to have people hold up his hands so that he can... Uh, defeat the Amalekites, but this is where he strikes the rock and they get water from the rock. So now we're down to about right here. They've come all the way from Ramesses, across the Red Sea. They're coming down. Number eight, uh, they go to Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments given. And God talks about at that point, I want them to know they are my treasured possession. Now, isn't that fascinating that God says to the people who were not the most mighty in the land, to the people who were not the most numbered in the land, who were not the best in the land, I have chosen you and you are my most precious possession. Now, if I'm in this story, I'm starting to feel kind of good. Yeah, I'm probably complaining with all the others. But I'm starting to get the opinion God really does want us to be His children. Number nine, 
they move over into the Sinai wilderness. And Israel constructed the tabernacle so that God said, this will be my meeting place with them. I will dwell among them. So now they're getting this tangible, visible fact of carrying a tabernacle with them that God said, this is where I'm going to meet you. This is where I'm going to talk with you. Anytime you want to talk with me, you know we have a place to meet. Number 10, they are in the wilderness of camp, the wilderness camps in the wilderness of, well, this is down on the lower end of the Sinai Peninsula. This is where 70 elders come to help Moses. Moses goes, these people are driving me crazy. They are complaining, I can't do this anymore. As a matter of fact, he says to God, if this is what it's going to be, just go ahead and kill me. Just kill me. End all of this. He's getting kind of frustrated. God said, get 70 people that you think are really, really good to help you lead the people. Now here's something that I did not know until I started studying this. And he says, I will give them part of the spirit that's on you so that they will have it also. I did not know that. I'm going to take the spirit, Moses, that you have, and I'm going to give some of that to these leaders so that they will be guided by more than their own sins. That's impressive to me. That God said, I want them being guided by the spirit. <laughs> Number 11. We are now up to about right here. They passed through Esau and Ammon with peace. God said, don't, don't be um, trying to attack these people. Uh, do not provoke them. And anything that you eat and drink, you pay them. Because I, you're not taking their land. So you pay them for, in silver for the things that they give to you, food and water. Number 12, Kadesh, and we're going to come back to Kadesh. Kadesh is a fascinating place to me. They go on over to Kadesh, number 12. Moses sent in spies. Israel did not enter the land, served as a main camp for many years. But I want to come back to Kadesh and talk about many of the things that happened at Kadesh. It becomes a focal point. Number 13, the eastern wilderness. They are now up to about right here. They avoided contact with Edom. Number 14, the Ammon River. Ammonites were destroyed. This is where they fought them uh, and destroyed them. Number 15, now we're a little past where we are at that point right now in Deuteronomy 7 and 8. Moses views the promised land. Most of you know Moses was told, you're not going to get to do this. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. Why was it such a big deal that Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock? And God said, you know what? Because you did that, you will not step foot in the promised land. I'll let you see it. But you're not going in there. That's pretty impressive to me that you go, whoa. Okay, if God said, speak to the rock and water will come forth, and I spoke to the rock, but I hit it also, and God said, shouldn't have done that, Moses. 
you don't go to the promised land. I want to talk about that a little bit. But Moses views the promised land at Mount Nebo. 16, the plains of Moab. He tells them, all right, begin to divide the land so that you know where you're going into. Give to the largest tribes a larger portion of land and to the smaller tribes smaller portions of land. They began to disperse the land. Number 17, they crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. And this is always an impressive story to me. Many of you probably know this, but it always strikes me. As God says, have the priests carry the ark across and have them stand in the water so the waters will be divided. When you read on down through this, it says the water didn't stop until the first priest's foot hit the water. They had to walk out on faith. It wasn't like, okay, God, we're getting close to the water here. Are you going to stop this? These are at flood stages. Are you going, okay, we're about to walk. Are you going to stop? Are you going to divide this? What are you going to do? When the first priest's foot hit the water, the waters stopped dividing. And then Moses says, take up the 12 stones and carry them with you. So that years from now, when your children say, why do we have these stones? You can tell the story of how God brought you out of Egypt. How God freed you from slavery. That's always impressive to me. The number of times that God says, remember what I did for you. Number 18, we go to Jericho. Israel captured and destroyed Jericho. I want to come back now just to a couple of points of interest. Mount Hor is where Aaron died. Aaron didn't enter the promised land. Mount Nebo is where Moses died and was buried. Moses didn't enter the promised land. But I want to talk just a minute about Miriam and Kadesh. Uh, Miriam is a fascinating character to me. I started looking more about her. Moses and Aaron told, were told that they did not honor God as holy. They will not bring the Israelites into the promised land. Moses' older sister, some of the commentaries think she is likely the one who was watching over Moses in the bulrushes of the Nile. Don't know that for sure, but one of his sisters was watching. They think it may have been Miriam. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam's parents were Amram and Jochebed. They were from the tribe of Levi. That, that's impressive to me, the number of times that the tribe of Levi shows up. When Moses is up, on, is up on Mount Sinai, and he comes down, and they're worshiping the golden calf, and God says, get out of the way. I'm going to kill every one of them. I've had it. I'm tired of it. Moses argues with God and says, you can't do that. You've made a promise. God says, I'll fulfill the promise through you. Get out of the way. Moses continues to argue with God, and he finally goes down, and he says, all of you who want to stand with the Lord, come with me. One tribe came forward, the tribe of Levi. And they later then become the priestly tribe. So I've got all of this going around in my head at this time. Micah says, by the way, this, this I did not know until I began to study this. 
I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron to lead you and Miriam to lead you. That's pretty impressive for a male-dominated society for God to have said, Miriam will be one of the leaders of the children of Israel also. When you're wandering for these 40 years, I've got three people I want you following. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. But not one of the three entered the promised land. Let's look at that for just a second. Mo, uh, Miriam died at Kadesh. Miriam was called a prophetess. I did go back and look up that word, Eric. Uh, you were talking about earlier, Randall. What, it, what is the word for so-and-so? I wanted to see what it was uh, for prophetess. It says it's a prophet, <laughs> period. Miriam was a prophetess. Not allowed to enter the promised land because Miriam and Aaron complained about Moses marrying a Cushite woman. Now, whether or not that was uh, Zipporah, we don't really know. Zipporah was from Midian. This lady is called a Cushite, which we think was a little bit south down toward Ethiopia. So we don't know if that's the, if Miriam and Zipporah, I mean, excuse me, if his Cushite woman and Zipporah were the same person or not. Most of the commentaries said no. We don't think that it was. We think it was a different one. Miriam and Aaron are complaining about Moses marrying her. And God says, since Moses was more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth, Numbers 12, 3. The most humble man on the face of the earth. God was angry for speaking against his servant Moses. Why would you be, why would you be talking bad about my servant? Now just a little sidestep here. Uh, I, I really think this speaks to us today. When we have leaders who have been appointed by the Holy Spirit, our elders, in the church here at Otter Creek, we need to be very, very cautious Amen. about speaking against them. If there's anything that's clear, God said, you don't speak against my servants. Now, Hilton and Randall, I don't know if there are others in here or not. I know the two of you are, are elders here. Steve. Oh, Steve Adam. I didn't see Steve sitting here. I'm sorry. Fletcher. Fletcher, good, thank you. All elders raise your hand. Do what? All elders raise your hand. Yes, we need to know who we don't all fuss at. So who not to say bad things to while we're here. There's a lot more elders than there used to be. Oh, that's right. Fred is. Fred's an elder back there. Yeah. All right. Who is not an elder? Is anybody in here not an elder? <laughs> Back to 70 palm trees. That's right. We have we now have 70 times. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna start fussing about that. Wayne's a former elder. Yeah, we do have former elders here. But God was angry for speaking against his servants. Now I will tell you honestly, even New Testament scripture tells us these men were appointed by the Holy Spirit. Okay, I want to be real cautious. 
Do I agree with them on everything that's done, Hilton and Randall and everybody else we can know? We'll sure. disagree. We'll disagree from time to time. Well, maybe not Randall, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hilton and I worked together for a long time. He, know, he knows me well. There's a difference in disagreeing with someone and in speaking against someone. I think one of the takeaways that I have today is I need to be extremely careful about how I conduct myself in a relationship to these men who have been appointed by the Holy Spirit. I'm seeing other elders around uh, through here. I think you're right. 70 palm trees may not be enough, but the idea is we need to be very aware. It cost Miriam and Aaron getting to go into the Holy Land. That's a pretty serious thing. The Lord was so angry, he struck Miriam with leprosy. Aaron, it says, repented of his speaking against Moses. I don't know if he did that before he saw Miriam was struck with leprosy or after he saw Miriam was struck with leprosy. But it says, Aaron repented of his sin of speaking against Moses. He said, God, I shouldn't have done that. God did not strike him, but he said, Aaron, you won't go into the promised land either. Moses pleaded for the healing of Miriam that she would be healed of leprosy, which was not anything that we had a cure for at that time. And God did heal her in one week. She was put outside the camp so that she would not contaminate other individuals. She was healed in one week, seven days later. And yet Miriam was still not allowed to enter the promised land. Speaking against God's servants is a huge factor for God. The lesson is that no one is too important to receive God's discipline for personal sin. For personal sin. Numbers 32, 11, the Lord said, Because they have not followed me wholeheartedly, and not one of the men 20 years old or more who came up out of Egypt will see the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, except no one except Caleb and Joshua. And when I looked at the word for wholeheartedly, the best definition was to be filled up. They are so filled with me. They'll get to come into the promised land. But none of the others who are 20 years of age and older of the 600,000 who left, none of you will enter the promised land. 600,000 men, not counting women and children. So, let's look at chapter 7 real quickly. And I'm going to run through chapter 7 and 8 because what I did when I was doing this particular study was to say, I want to hear the words that Moses would have been saying I want to act as though I'm standing there listening and I hear what he says because I think there's power in speaking aloud the word of God. And so I've pulled out several verses from this for us to hear today. When the Lord brings you into the land you're entering, you're going to find seven nations that are larger and stronger than you. When the Lord delivers them to you, a promise. Did I hear that? 
when the Lord delivers them to you and you have defeated them, here's what you must do. Must do. Not I hope you do. Not I give you the option to do. Here's what you must do. Boy, this is pretty tough. You must destroy them totally. I don't know that I would have wanted to hear that. But God said, here's what you must do. You must totally destroy them. You'll make no treaty with them. You will show no mercy. Goodness. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons. Do not take their daughters for your sons. They will turn your sons away from me. But if you do, the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Now, if I'm sitting there listening to that, okay, you know this land you're about to go into? Destroy everyone who is in there. Don't make any treaties with them. You are to show no mercy to them. Destroy them totally. Phew, that kind of hurts my heart. I don't want you marrying with them. You may find them attractive. Do not intermingle with them. Destroy them. This is a little difficult to comprehend. One commentator that I read said, but this is what a physician does to remove a cancerous growth from an individual to prevent the destruction of the rest of the body. We open the body up. We deliberately, intentionally carve, cut, radiate, do all sorts of things to remove that. We destroy it totally so that the rest of the body may live. God says, you are my most precious possession. I don't want anything contaminating you. I have no idea. I've read some but I have no idea how corrupt these lands were, but they were corrupt enough that God said, totally destroy them. Jim, I'm going to, again, sure. I, I go back, I feel, a year or two ago, I taught Joshua and Judges. Yeah, I remember it. And, and, and I believe that this totally destroy is hyperbole. Yep. Because the people who in Joshua are totally destroyed turn up later in, in Judges and they're not destroyed, and they're, and they're all around the place, and they can't drive them out. And there may be some credence, George, yeah. to him saying, if you totally destroy them, you don't need to say, don't make a treaty with them, or don't intermarry with them. But notice in verse 22, verse 22 is, is a, I think, a really interesting one here. Go uh, ahead, read it for us. Uh, let's see. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to make a quick end of them. Otherwise, the wild animals become too numerous for you. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, he starts off saying destroy them. He said, but this is, it's not going to be the blitzkrieg you read in Joshua. It's going to be a slow process. It's going to take time. So it's not like coming in and wiping everybody out immediately. It's going to be a, a process that takes time. 
and, and again, what you see is these folks stick around. They're around for a long time. Yeah. What? One of the another interpretation, George. And I wouldn't dispute that. That's a very viable interpretation. Is that you're not going to destroy all of them in the land of Canaan at the same time. That's not going to happen. They're not. I mean, God could have said, "I'm going to wipe all of them out. You all just go in and take over." He didn't. He said, "You're going to take this one, and then you're going to take this one, and then you're going to take this one." So that's still in in correlation with the example that you've just given, and it could be hyperbole, whether he did or whether he didn't. I think the end result comes out to be, I don't want you doing anything with them, period. Yeah. Yes, sir. So, taking it from the perspective of being an Israelite, hearing this, you, you, you hear this, this is you know, your, your operating mindset, the instructions that you're following, and then it doesn't work out quite as quickly as the speech. And so, you, so, so how, how, are, how are you thinking about that a year later when you're going, we've been trying to get rid of these groups and we're doing our best, they're not gone. Obvi you know, I mean, obviously, you're thinking, all right, we're not going to marry them. We're not going to have anything to do with them. But you're trying to destroy them. You're not being as successful as you would like to be destroying them. What's going through your mind at that point? I think that's why the people were grumbling and complaining against Moses all the way through all of this. I have the very same issue with when God says, I'm going to take you and give you the promised land, come out of Egypt. I'm just telling you, at about year five, I'm like, do you have any clue about what you're doing, where you're going? All I'm looking around is seeing desert. At about year 10, I'm really pretty convinced you don't have a clue where you're going, do you? I mean, I see where God's going, but I'm not sure what the two of you are talking about. You go away and come back and say, God told you this. You know, yeah, I think that was a real problem that God did not do this, just as George said, immediately. It was little by little that they did this. So the wild animals, he says, wouldn't take over. Are you telling me that God could wipe out entire nations in front of you, but he couldn't control wild animals? No, there's something else going on here. I'm not quite sure what it was, but it's a time frame that God set. Well, it, part of it is, he says, to test them see what's in their heart. Yeah, Fred? I'm reminded of something I read uh, this week in one of the newspapers. Um, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts gave the graduation speech, I think at his son's middle school uh, this past week. And it's very interesting. Um, rather than have this real positive, upbeat speech, he says, I hope you experience failure. So you really know what it means. Yeah. What what victory is. I hope you experience pain so you can appreciate comfort. I, I can't quote the speech. Sure. I've kind of given you a summary, but he went through about eight or nine different negative uh, outcomes so that you may learn. And I, I think that's what's being said here. If the Israelites got success too quickly, it's taken for granted or it's which, kind of over. Which is the point in chapter 8, Fred, when he comes down and he says, 
Now, when all of this is done, don't get so cocky that you think you did all of this. I think your point's well taken. No, your point's a good one. Yes, sir. I want to toss out, too, because it's easy to struggle with, but why would God wipe people out instead of show mercy? And uh, the Jewish physician and rabbi Maimonides' theory on this conquest wipeout strategy is that God tried to, or that Joshua went to the 31, mm -hmm. all these people, and tried to make peace. They refused, so God said, wipe them out. And Joshua 11, 18 and 19 says, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites. So that's just another thing to consider. Yeah, no, I think, you is that I think it's he tried very to make good. Peace. Yeah. They all said no. God said, get them out. You know, it's, <laughs> it's sort of like with, uh, was it with the Amalekites that he went down and said, okay, we're just going to kind of like, go through here, we're not going to bother you, and they said, uh, you come in our land, we're going to fight, and Moses was like, we don't want to, we don't want to fight, and they attacked, and Moses said, okay, all right, and he killed them, period, he destroyed them. Deuteronomy chapter 9, he clarifies a little bit further, says, when you get in here, don't think it's because of your righteousness you're getting, exactly, it's yeah. because of the wickedness. <laughs> it was, and this is this is what stressed Hilton over and over and over. And as I said, I don't know what all that wickedness wickedness was, but it was so contaminating that God said, well, "We got to stop it. We, uh, this can't be a part of my people." Well, one of the things to think about I mean, I, uh, is that we have the story and the revelation of God's grace through the eye or through the lives of the Israelites. Just as that thing you, you mentioned a minute ago about other people came with them, yeah, is that God? I don't think abandoned the rest of the of the Earth's population. He continued to uh, provide revelation, and others had the ability, if they wanted to, to be godly. To they could, have. yeah. And these people. It seems like the sin that comes back again and again is their refusal to worship God as, as yeah, God. Yeah, I think that's right. When you look at, if I get to it on here, uh, God continually says in the latter part of chapter 7 and in chapter 8, the Lord your God. And he keeps using that phrase over and over and over for them because there were gods of all sorts that were in this. And God keeps saying to them, you're my precious possession. The Lord your God says do so and so so and so. He kept coming back over and over and over that he wanted to be preeminent, Hilton. I think you're right. Uh, one other commentator said, why would we be surprised that God wanted them destroyed? He had already destroyed the earth except for Moses and his family. And it's the same process that will occur on Judgment Day when he separates the sheep from the goats. There will be people destroyed. There will be people that are not destroyed. Uh, when he says in chapter 7, this is what you are to do when you go in and take over their countries. You break down their altars, smash their sacred poles, cut down their Asherah poles, uh, which were named after this Canaanite god, Ei. They were put up, and it was actually his wife, put up in her honor, which was largely a focus on fertility. And God was like, you don't need poles. I am the Lord your God. That's where you keep your focus. 
burn their idols in the fire. For you are people holy, which is a fascinating word to me. I've, I've been intrigued by the word holy for a long time to look at. What is, it, what is the implications of that word? To be holy, for God to count us as holy. There's a tremendous lesson for us to be there. To the Lord your God. This is where that phrase starts coming in. Be holy. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his treasured possession. All right, that tells us how God looks at us. Uh, this word holy means to be set apart, but there's also a section of it that says God sets us apart so that we can be dedicated to him. And that's a second step. God says, I'm going to separate you as my holy people so that you can be dedicated to me. And that's a part of this holiness idea that it's a two-step process. There is a response from God in separating us. There is a response from us in being dedicated to him. Verse 8, because the Lord loved you, he brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from a land of slavery. Know that the Lord your God is God. Eric, do we end at 11, at uh, 45, 1145 or 1150? 1145. Okay. Or sometimes 50. I'm, I'm one minute over. Let me go one more verse on here. Verse 8, he is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him, those who keep his commandments. Now, this idea of covenant is another worthy, worthy study. Uh, what did first century Christians, what do we hear when we hear God say, I've made a covenant with you? The depth of that word is absolutely phenomenal to me in showing how God wants us to be his most prized possession. Sorry I didn't get to chapter 8. Uh, you can go ahead and read through chapter 8. Eric, thank you for giving me the chance to uh, share 7 and 8. You all have a great rest of the week. Thank you, sir. It's a great, it's a great text. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, you got it. You could do a whole class. Of that. I, mean, I mean, a whole series. Well, yeah, on Covenant and Holy. Yeah, those two especially. My goodness. Job, Jim. We need oh. Jimmy. <laughs> Excellent you, job, my man. Thank you. Yeah. Go Eric, thank, thank you, Jim. I, I didn't turn that off or anything. I